Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today we're talking with Joey Lawrence about disintegration and neurodiversity. We'll be talking about lived experiences, how we think about these things, and also how we talk about these things, whether or not it is with a partner in a relationship or with clients in practice or as a society as a whole. The one thing that stood out to me from this discussion is the importance of being on the same page and reaching a place of mutual understanding. But how do we get there? Well, we're going to talk about this and a lot more in this episode. Hello listeners, welcome back to Positive Disintegration. I'm your host Emma Nicholson and with me is co-host Dr. Chris Wells. Hello Chris. Hey Emma, how are you? I'm great. What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about neurodivergence. I can tell you that. And from like the lived experience and professional aspects. So I'm looking forward to it. Excellent, me too. We can't have enough of that at this point in my opinion. (laughs) No, we get a lot of feedback about it as well. So a lot of positive feedback, which is great. So for our listeners, our guest is Joey Lawrence. Joey is a PDA autistic person, clinical psychologist, neurodiversity advocate, and director at Noodle Psychology. Joey and the team at Noodle are passionate about creating neurodivergent safe spaces and providing unmasked support services and education for neurodivergent people, their loved ones, and the broader community. She also shares her lived experience with the world via TikTok. Welcome, Joey. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for joining us, Joey. Uh, We met like in a Facebook group, but I remember sharing a paper that I wrote in a group and you responded and were like, I know who you are, (laughs) which was such a weird experience for me. And you even had like a link to my paper on your website, which really, I have to be honest, blew my mind. I mean, in like the best possible way. So I'm so glad that that happened and we have gotten to know each other a little bit. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you've had that experience of someone fanning on you, which I have had a little bit from my TikTok, but it it is a strange one, but that is exactly what happened when I saw your name pop up. Um, I think I was asking about resources for twice exceptional people and you're like, hey, I wrote about this. I'm like, this paper? oh my God, we need to talk. (laughs) Yeah, that was such an interesting experience. It's so true. Like it's, I'm still adjusting to people knowing who I am, period. And honestly, they don't always have a good reaction to me, which is also something to adjust to. But I mean, whatever, I think that you're always going to have some degree of like haters Mm -hmm. when you are in the public eye at all. So it's just something to adjust to. But I mean, it's hard when you're sensitive though. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I've done a lot of um, disintegrating around that that dynamic, so I'm sure that will come up, um, given my experiences of disintegration and how central that's been for me. Um, but yeah, I, I did sort of creep on you, and like I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but was like, hey, like there's some things that I think would be interesting to talk about with you from what I've been working on. And I have to throw in that Chris was just as excited to talk to you, because I know Chris was like, oh, have you seen Joy in her TikTok? This is fantastic. That's right. 
Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of overlaps with what we're interested in. Well, I, I know that you listen to the podcast, so you must know that the first thing that I want to know about is like how you discovered Dabrowski's theory. I think I was already well into a disintegration by the time I discovered it, which was very good timing. I was actually helping out a friend of mine who had an IQ test. And because I studied neuropsychology, um, I have a doctorate in clinical neuropsychology. Um, I was looking at their results and they are a late diagnosed autistic person who is AFAB, so assigned female at birth. And I was looking through their results. I'm like, all your results are in the 99th percentile. So did they talk about giftedness or anything like that? What? Giftedness? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not really sure um, why that didn't come up, but but yeah, it could be worth looking into. But given I really didn't have that much education around giftedness, even though I did a neuropsychology degree, I was like, well, I should look into this. And then I found the um, conversations on gifted trauma. I was listening to that um, really just to help my friend understand their experience. And then things started to weirdly click into place, which led to an extreme hyper-focus and coming to um, overexcitabilities, TPD. And at that point, um, yeah, the info dumping was extremely intense <laughs> for for my partner, um, who's been very great. But yeah, I, I was like this, I, I do not know how this is not something that I, that I like, why did I not learn this? This explains so much of the experiences that my clients are having. And I feel as if this not being in the mental health system is like at this point worrying. It, it just felt so important. And from, um, from then on, I integrated that into the work that I do with my clients and continue to um, yeah, work, work with the theory and um, try to expand on it. Interesting. And the fact that you're in Australia, I mean, I know that in some ways it's even worse there than it is here in the United States when it comes to giftedness as like something that culturally is kind of frowned upon. Well, I must say that I haven't really had that many experiences with that even being something that's discussed. Um, what I have experienced is probably just stigmatization or um, erasure of giftedness. And it's very controversial. I was going to say erasure is probably the better term. Not even stigmatization. It's just there's no visibility of it at all. Mm. And when it is, it's squish. <laughs> squish indeed. Right. <laughs> we would love to hear more about your own journey. Like, I don't know much about, you know, were you diagnosed autistic in adulthood? Um, do you want to say something, if you don't mind, about PDA? Because our listeners you know, Emma introduced you as an aut a PDA autistic person, and they may not know what PDA is. Would you mind giving a little education around that, please? Yeah, sure. Well, I was um, identified in adulthood, self-identified, well, because I am a psychologist, so it was, I felt a little bit more confident in my own self-identification. But then I was officially identified or diagnosed, whatever word you want to use, um, by a trusted psychologist, um, which is very important in the uh, in being identified. But then in exploring my own experiences, I came across PDA. So PDA, again, is a very controversial or, or a concept that's disagreed on within the autism community. Okay, so PDA is um, a term that means pathological demand avoidance, and it's thought to be a profile in autism but a lot of people who identify as PDA prefer the term persistent drive for autonomy. 
Um, and the way that I like to view it um, is a persistent desire for authenticity. And it's this profile that's, that's really about having really strong involuntary responses to anything that impinges upon autonomy, whether that's perceived or actual, and has a number of features that are associated with really just picking up on power differentials that are being applied to the person, whether or not they consciously perceive it as being that, but having a dysregulating response to that being applied to the extent that even a question that's phrased that has some way of insinuating that person is above you in some sort of hierarchy can create a stress response in the person. So there are a number of different uh, approaches that need to be used for PDA people. PDA people do not respond to traditional approaches down to everything to do with, you know, quote unquote, executive function, parenting, relationships, everything is different for a PDA person. I self-identified with that because my therapist at the time did not agree that it was kind of like a thing. Um, but yeah, I've since sort of just done my own work and developed my own criteria and everything for it, as you do. <laughs> I wonder about it um, with ADHD. You know, I know it's seen as a, a profile of autism, but I when I discovered PDA and started reading about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so familiar to me. But I have never... I haven't really seen myself as autistic. I was diagnosed with ADHD and have identified for a long time as an ADHD -er. And so I wonder, you know, I hope that eventually there'll be enough research and progress that we can like better understand this kind of thing from multiple kinds of neurodivergence. Yeah. We do, uh, there is a lot of people who are talking about how people who are PDA tend to also be ADHD -er. And the other thing about PDA profile of autism is that um, such individuals tend to mask very highly um, and they have an interest in social matters. So it's kind of like the autistic hyperfocuses in society. So that's going to look very different to your traditional sort of, I guess, stereotype view of autism where you're not aware socially. It's sort of like you're hyper aware or more aware, but in a different way. And, <laughs> Yeah, things start to get very um, interesting when you look at a hyperfocus on, on social dynamics. So when you were young, did you struggle? Um, like, I mean, you're a psychologist and you have a doctorate. So obviously you managed to be successful academically. But like when you discovered these things about yourself in adulthood, tell us how it felt, you know, to to have the moment of discovery around autism and PDA and maybe giftedness if that wasn't something that you were like aware of when you were young? Yeah, well, the ADHD came first because at the time that was the understanding of neurodivergence that was um, discussed more commonly. <laughs> and I, I guess it was sort of like a series of disintegrations is probably the best way I, I can put it. And given the weight or the intensity of processing that needs to occur from my previous conception of myself, it's not really possible to describe it, I don't think. Um, but I, I guess I could probably describe like the thing as a whole in that like my experiences of being someone who is very overexcitable, ADHD, autistic, PDA, interested in psychology and neuroscience and philosophy, and then 
On top of that, I was also experiencing systemic oppression and vicarious trauma through other people who are having systemic oppression who are neurodivergent at the same time. So you can only imagine, you know, what that's going to do to a person. Yeah. I can only really describe it in like poetry, probably, which I've, I've, well, I don't know if it's really poetry, but I've got a couple of things that I wrote that I can maybe use as like phenomenological, that's a very hard word to say, data or information to describe the process. Um, but yeah, I don't have to go into that. <laughs> very an- intense. <laughs> You're like a natural theorist too. I wanted to bring that up while we're recording today. I mean, you, like one of the first things you sent me was your like your own theory of how neurodivergence and overexcitabilities are connected, which was so interesting. And I actually was looking at it this week when I came to all of this and I discovered the theory and I started going down the rabbit holes. I mean, it just felt like my mind was exploding. I used to write that regularly, like my thoughts are exploding and it was kind of an overwhelming experience. And I wonder how it's been for you because I relate to you so much when I see you, Um, you know, on social media talking about this stuff, you just naturally see all the connections. And I'm not sure like what question there is in what I'm saying right now, but you know, feel free to run with it if you can. (laughs) Yeah, I um, had a gifted assessment and the outcome was um, we did come to somewhat of an understanding about the profile which for me is kind of one way to understand because I don't think there's ever really just one way to understand experience, but anyhow, I digress. Um, but the, the main conclusion was my existential intelligence is exceptional, which I think is another way to say you can't really describe it <laughs> because it's, it's like what? Um, and that, that is my experience is that whenever I sort of seek out help or understanding it doesn't really ever quite make sense. And I have to make my own theory to make sense of every little new piece of information. And then that just kind of evolves. Um, and, and so the theory that I sent you, I, I'm like, Oh, that was so like rudimentary <laughs> compared to where like, that was so 2022. That was like old me that they, they don't even exist anymore. Um, but like, I've since come to like, I've integrated all of that and like created a, um, a model, which I, I like and manipulate is like a system dynamical model to explain levels one and two and how everything uh, interrelates. So, um, yeah, that's how I process. And I don't even feel like I process on the level of me. Like I have to process with like every like dynamic that is occurring within society and everything. <laughs> um, it's a lot. Well, and you mentioned your partner. Um, I also relate to that experience of, you know, again, when I was coming to all of this, my partner was like, what are you doing? I mean, it was so hard for Mm -hmm. him to kind of, he was kind of like, stop talking about this, you know, like, are you ever going to just like watch TV with me and not also have to read and write something at the same time? Or like, can we get through a meal without like, any of these concepts coming up and it's like, no. And I mean, that was years ago and it's still kind of a big no on all of that. No. So, but it's really hard. And Emma probably has something to say about this too. It's tough when you're in a relationship and you suddenly have this overwhelming need to study something. Yes. I thought I'd tell this a little bit of a anecdote or story. I don't know what the differences are between those about how I like became a fractal. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I was trying to like interact. So like I've been going through these phases of just, um, you know, going into the inner disintegrative space of the mind. Good fun. And one day I was just laying down and I was observing myself, but then the act of observing myself became the observer. And I did experience that as kind of being this recursive self-experience and that was all that was happening. And I know that I was laying on the couch and I promise you I did not take any psychedelics. I was just sitting there or laying there and then all of a sudden my partner wanted to interact with me. So he's like, hey, and then I had to come out and then I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so th- I'm sitting there like trying to, trying to, cause he wanted me to answer the email. I don't know what he wanted me to do. And I was like, it's really hard to do this when I've just been a fractal. <laughs> and like, that is kind of my experience. And he's like, are you okay? And like, I say that and then he's worried. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm better than before. Cause now I know the nature of what I am, but also I'm the same. And conversations do not flow <laughs> so, like the way I'm responding now that's kind of how I talk now and he's like uh yeah but I found Emma a, a video that Emma made um which I was like oh okay yeah any one of those things would be way better than whatever whatever I'm doing because he's just he's just copying it and I showed that to him he's like yeah exactly like I'm just trying to live my life and any single thing I say activates like talking about, you know, James Webb telescopes. Like, can you just slow down? Like, I actually can't. Like, I actually can't. Um, well, I hope that video did help and it helps people <laughs> somewhat moving forward because I sort of learned a lot of that through trial and error. And I suppose like it, this here, this sort of attaches to all the things that you've been talking about up to this point anyway is that you have these unusual experiences and it's like, well, how do you take that and then translate that to someone who arguably hasn't had that experience or can't have that experience? And I guess the the one thing was my dad actually gave me a piece of advice is that not everybody has to know everything about you. Like slow down a little and as much as you want to share, it's not a prerequisite for them loving you. Um, They don't need to know every intimate detail of your life. So that helped me think about things from the perspective, well, what do I need to share? Um, And then I also used my experience from a work perspective of trying to communicate, you know, complex ideas and teach it to other people. Say, okay, how can I break this down smaller? Because we know if we're giving people a learning curriculum, you can't just dump, you know, an entire year's worth of learning on people on day one. You have to break it up into chunks and into small lessons. So I tried to apply a lot of that logic and, you know, maybe some of it was a bit after the fact, but I I do understand the thing that you can't just like take these weird, unusual experiences, whether it be disintegration or being neurodivergent and then just go to someone and and regurgitate everything in one huge information dump because they're on the other side going, whoa, because your mind is making these huge leaps right? They're they're making these dot connections. And when Chris was talking about you and philosophy, it's like, you know, you're making these connections of things. You're a big existential thinker as per your profile, but not everybody can keep up with that. So it's like taking your audience into consideration. And that applies just as well to your your partner in a relationship as it does everybody else. Because I think sometimes we forget the person that we're in the relationship with is not... (laughs) 
is not us and they're not always thinking on the same line. It's like, yes, they are still audience. They are still their own person doing their own thing with their own needs. And sometimes we get a bit blindsided with that because we have that really strong connection. It's like, well, they love us, you know, surely they can stay on the same page with us. It's like, it's not always possible. That's where the work in the relationship comes in to stay on the same page. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, And I think that it would, it would have been very helpful to have some guidance around that. Um, And and we, we've worked through it. Um, I I think there's a process of disintegration that will need to occur within the relationship as a system as well, which has been positive for us, but it probably did not have to be as, I don't know, whiplashy. I don't know what other word. Um, I, I agree with your conclusions there are some additional challenges that come with neurodivergence as well. I sort of feel as if I need some kind of like device to electric shock me like every 12 seconds to remind me to be on like communicate, not about things that are like so existential all the time. And then I also assume that other people know what I'm talking about. Like they'll, they'll be saying something. Oh, and I'm like, Oh, you know, like David Bohm's, you know, implicate order. Like that's exactly. And I like just, there's when I become into that like in that space I just go yeah you must know this or give everyone the benefit of the doubt and they're like and then they feel like I'm doing something wrong and I'm just like then it'll break down it breaks down so it's it's a challenging process but I'm I think I need an apple watch (laughs) to remind me like be somewhat okay and normal to talk to you know like uh, internalized ableism there right but yeah it's 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 a very difficult thing to manage, I should say. So if it's hard, it's okay. You'll figure it out. <laughs> I think there's a couple of things in that uh, insofar as you, you can find other spaces where people kind of do know what you're talking about. So whether or not you're finding that online community of other neurodivergent people or, you know, people who have, you know, studied psychology or whatever that understand the theory behind it. So, and, and also too, it's a bit unfair to, expect your partner to bear all the burden of being, you know, wearing all hats and being all things to you. So finding that outlet where you can then go and people can keep up with you is is kind of important and sort of share the load around. But I also did a blog about um, are you a thought dancer? So when you get this rapid ideation and all your thoughts going in your head and they just want to spill out at a million miles a minute, like my advice and what I found works for me is to take that away you know, write it out or do whatever and then wait until you can maybe boil it down into some more concise bullet points before you go and share it with people. Like make it make some sense first. Like get it out of your own head in your own space before you just go dumping it, a stream of consciousness kind of thing. Um, and so you can take that away and be your own sounding board, I guess, you know, through journaling or writing or doing whatever you're doing or recording it on voice And then once you've condensed it down and made it a little bit more palatable and simplified, you can take it away and share it with other people. So I think there's a couple of ways to actually manage that. But you're right. It's the actual reminding yourself to catch yourself in that moment and say, oh, we're doing that thing again. Yeah, absolutely. To be, And there's kind of like a trauma element to this as well. I mean, the thought dancing is something when you said that, I'm like, yeah, that is kind of how my mind works. It's very nonlinear like what we're talking about now and kind of connecting that to like four conversations ago and like the whole picture of that is like what I would take as a conclusion. Um, but, but anyhow, the, 
but that reminded me of when I had my gifted assessment and um, I was asked, you know, do I feel as if I, I need to slow myself down or kind of like, um, you know, reduce what I'm thinking and, you know, other people stop by the time they, they stop too early. And I sort of feel as if I don't ever start. So like when I'm giving information, that is my reduced version. <laughs> and like, and then that makes me feel like, oh my God, like, you know, I'm such a a-hole or something. But I, I don't really know how to communicate, like, it, 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 yeah, without just completely losing. And anyway, so so it's it's a struggle being in a disintegration and being like having the profile that I do is forever like f- finding how to reduce myself to not be kind of ostracized or traumatized or have a neg- or offend someone or you know. So I just kind of end up listening to like Krishnamurti podcast, <laughs> like ah, uh, my friends. <laughs> it's very soothing. One thing that really upsets me in online spaces that we're in together or we have been is that if you try to talk about giftedness in neurodivergent spaces, there's often like a really negative reaction from people, and they're like, "No, that's elitism," or whatever they say, but it's, it's so common to, for me to like see a post about something and then look in the comments and see that like giftedness is just being shredded as not real, not relevant. And yet like what we're talking about right now is the experience of, of giftedness and, you know, other kinds of neurodivergent, like giftedness is what makes it so hard for us to rein in our thoughts, to be able to express them in a way that other people can, can accept, you know? I mean, I spent a lot of my life not being myself, not being able to share who I am, like in all of my intensity. And it's only in the last few years or maybe five years that I've felt like I'm finding people who can take who I am and, and not like, pretend like they get me and then like they don't want to talk anymore like I have like I like so many gifted people I feel like I have a whole history of that where people are like yeah right and they're nice to your face but they don't want to keep talking to you because they can't deal with you I mean maybe I'm just an asshole though too like who knows (laughs) there's always (laughs) that hey it's like am I no I'm just an asshole because that's the feedback you know that that is and it's fair enough because if we look at um the, the reality of somebody who, who who does not sort of you know shoot off into these all these directions, how they may perceive that if they also hierarchize their reality is that of domination, and there's an extreme level of double empathy problem when we, when we look at um, between neuro neurotypes. That's controversial, but when you have a different worldview that's so fundamentally different, you have trouble empathizing with one another. And for them, you very much do look like the a hole. But when you have a PDA profile and you do not want to upset anyone and you have injustice sensitivity as well, like I want to treat people fairly, you know, then that just spirals and creates extreme anxiety. And then reflection. <laughs> and it's just like being conscious is very exhausting. That's kind of what I would 
I just kind of want to go into the forest <laughs> and look at a tree. But then I'm overwhelmed by how beautiful that is. So yeah, the disintegration plus all this is, is very difficult. And I'm only really a year into this that it just keeps getting more intense. So I don't have any answers right now. <laughs> Apart from yes, I, yeah, it's hard. Can I go into analogy time? Yes, please. You know, I love my analogy. The way I see it is when you're a very intense person and, and Chris, you were talking about, you know, being gifted and it being perceived as almost a, an elitist thing. I think part of the problem is it's almost like you're burning hot, like a furnace, like a really intense fire. You're a very intense person and you feel like people are continually trying to smother your flames. And, you know, you're having to mask because you're, you're being told, you know, tone it down. But part of the, I guess, the reason why that perception comes about is that people get burnt by that fire as well. People who aren't built to take that heat, um, they can actually be hurt or, well, or perplexed or whatever for, you know, us going out a million miles a minute and super intense and, you know, particularly in those relationship settings where you're like, my head's exploding and I'm having all these feelings and they're like, whoa, like it's it's hard for them to watch you hurt. It's hard for them to keep up with your thoughts and so that places a stress on them and so it's this balancing act between how do I find spaces where my flame is not being smothered but also how can I learn to control my own fire so I don't burn other people with it? And that's not, it's not easy. It's not an easy dance to do, but I, I guess we just have to be conscious that, yeah, we're, we're sitting on like, you know, this very powerful thing and this powerful experience. Like we have to find the space to let it out and burn as hot as we can, but we also have to be conscious of, you know, that whole subject object. How does that, you know, scorch someone else? You just reminded me of um, Aurora's Embracing Intensity podcast. Her uh, logo is like a flame and it's like, use your fire without getting burned, you know? And so like, it's kind of perfect for what you just used as your analogy there, Emma. Well, I mean, it's true. Like if it's so hard to be this way and like, that's why when people talk about giftedness from that elitism kind of way. It's like, I understand why you think it's that way, but let me tell you that giftedness does not feel like a gift. I have a friend, Jen, that came up today. I had my study group session and I mentioned her, the title of her book. And I'm going to say it again. My friend, Jen Merrill wrote a book called, if this is a gift, can I give it back? I mean, yeah, that's been my experience of giftedness. Like I absolutely would have given it back when I was young to be normal. I wrote so often in my journal, why can't I just be normal? When will I be normal? I am just, I just want to be normal. That was my goal. That's so sad to me that I was like, how can I put myself into this box so I can fit with everybody else? Like that's, we should never be aspiring to be normal. Like whatever that is. I don't even know what that is, but, but as a kid, that's what I wanted. Managing these dynamics for everybody to be able to, you know, have some, peace it is extremely challenging and that kind of leads me to thinking about tpd and how i've interpreted all these all these dynamics in terms of like so, so the way i kind of i think about things it's like a system dynamics perspective where if i am interacting with somebody and they're having a reaction um to me 
I sort of see that as bringing out things within themselves that for, for whatever reason um, is part of their like stuff. Like that kind of is the potential for a disintegration within them, but they may experience cognitive dissonance or experience that as distressing. So then they need to oppose me to protect themselves from their own disintegration. And then I disintegrate more because that creates distance. So it's this very, and I know it sort of sounds really weird and stuff, but like it's this, it's this very dynamical process that I see like, I'll, I'll kind of say like, and, and as much as kind of, it's like, yes, you know, explain things in a way people can understand and be kind. And even when I do that, I feel like just my existence is, is very like hard for people to be with. <laughs> It's like I kind of have this disintegrating effect and I'm not trying to do that. But when I unmask even like a little bit, things just happen and um, like, you know, friendships shift and suddenly I'm like, you know, all sorts of names are being used and, and so on. But, yeah, I sort of see that as okay and then that makes me sort of figure out how I can navigate the world and, and, um, <laughs> and like where I need to go in the world to create a space where more people can be like themselves. <laughs> Hopefully I'm giving a sense for how dynamical I kind of see all these things. It's actually leading me maybe into the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is, can you tell us a bit about your work as a psychologist? Do you work uh, like strictly with adults? Do you work with kids too? Um, and do you, use the theory in your practice and what's that like for you? Um, yeah. So I work predominantly with adults um, and most of the people that I get um, who are wanting help are exploring neurodivergence in adulthood. Um, I do have a couple of kids, but we, we kind of use interest-based um, therapy. So whatever they're interested in, like gaming art, and then we, we work through that. So the the way that I work for people is like I kind of use this dynamical perspective and um, it integrates TPD. So when I meet with somebody, I profile their neurodivergence and that includes, um, you know, all these sort of different labels and things, their pattern of overexcitabilities, how they all interact and like what phase of development they're at. Um, and then from there it becomes a dynamical thing where our work together is um, sort of matching where they need to be. So if, if they sort of are, you know, disintegrating or something like that, um, they may, may need a container if it's getting too intense. Um, so then we provide that container, give some structure, um, give some information, you know, give some grounding, I guess you would call it. And then, yeah, uh, I, I don't know, I'm talking about <laughs> very processed stuff. W with that, working with, working with adults, Pretty much I would say I'm working with adults that are going through a positive disintegration because they're exploring neurodivergence and that's what it involves. But So it's been a useful framework for you then as a clinician, it sounds like. Yes. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with, the theory in itself requires like a big shift, shift in thinking, like at least from my experience. And Emma, like I, I've really appreciated the way that you explain it because um, I feel like you can break it down a lot better than, than what I have. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so, but yeah, I, I do, I do use it, but I sort of 
more use it in an implicit way. So I'm sort of tracking where they're at and, and not necessarily going, oh, you know, you're going to level three now or something like that, if that makes sense. It does. It's nice to talk about this because I feel like before we had the podcast and before we brought on clinicians to talk about their work and how the theory is relevant or not, I don't really know what people had in mind when they thought about using a theory in practice. Mm -hmm. For sure, I never mean that I'm like printing out chapters from Dabrowski and giving them to clients to read. Like, it's not that obvious, although it's not to say that I haven't printed out Dabrowski or, you know, like created documents for people, because of course I have done that too. It depends on what the person wants and needs, but it's more that we get it. And that's how we're bringing it into that, into the sessions with people. It's, it's such a, I've found it so cool to be able to be the one to introduce this thinking to people and to get to be a part of their process. It's such a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And on a practical level, if I, to make it a little bit more concrete, so I might have a client who they're experiencing something and their only framework for experiencing that is through the medical model or the pathologizing model of what it means to, you know, be anxious or something like that. And that needs to be eliminated. So I, I always sort of go from their experience curiously and go, you said that this thing has made you anxious. What what could that be telling you about what's being communicated to you, you know, through, you know, and trying to get the, the third factor there activated? And they go, well, actually, and then they start to, ref and then, and then um, hierarchize a little bit so I can see the process of them hierarchizing. Um, I go, oh, okay. And then so I got that. It's sort of like a somatic experience for me. And then I go, okay. And then I start to guide them up through that. But it's kind of the, this way of approaching things that's not putting them down back into level one, but helping them through level two where they're at without them kind of knowing that that's what we're talking about because then they'll be confused. And, unless they're kind of into it, Dabrowski. I also just wanted to say that it's true, Emma, that you are good at breaking this stuff down. You know, I mean, it's not a skill that I have. I suppose it's something that, because I've done a lot of communications and stuff at work, I guess I've just picked up that habit. And because I always think in analogies, I can always translate it into a, another story. But I, I hope that sort of helps other people get their head around the theory because I've noticed there's this kind of balance between sometimes it's good to know what's happening to you and to be able to put some labels on it and go, aha, that's what I'm going through and understanding things like, you know, why is guilt and shame helpful for me, you know, as a dynamism? Mm -hmm. And it's that balance between that and the approach that, Joey, you were talking about was you don't really want to, like, print them out stuff and get them entrenched in the theory. You just want to use it as a therapist to try and help them process through the stuff and go through it without actually having to intellectualize it and study it in depth. So I think I appreciate where you guys are coming from because it's this kind of weird balancing act of giving them just enough information, but not overloading them um, and actually helping them through the process. Cause I've sort of come to the conclusion recently that if you're not walking the talk, then there's not much point to it so you can intellectualize Dabrowski as much as you want and you can think about the theory and you can even do the exercise of hierarchy and you know sorting out your values but then if you're not putting that into action 
and you're not changing your behaviors to match your values like why are you doing it in the first place and particularly like if you're dealing with really complicated clients joey i can see how you've got to give them enough to help them through what they're going through and get them to a stage where they can sort of realign themselves to their values without like exploding their heads yeah Ooh, i you just made me think that what we really need because like what I think is so constraining is that like you're in Australia, Joey. So technically you can't be a therapist for people in the U S I mean, this is the way that our regulations are. I'm in Colorado here in the U S I'm only supposed to have therapy clients here. And so what we really need from this framework of positive disintegration, and this is what Dabrowski talked about was guides, people who've been through, the process of positive disintegration, they've come out of it at a higher level. And these are the people who can be advisors or mentors to people who are going through it. And to some degree, that's how I've kind of started reframing the services that I offer when I again do offer services, because right now I don't. But that's what I think that we need. And there's no, so on the one hand, there's no regulation around that. There's no licensure for being a guide or a mentor but on the other hand, if we had that kind of system, we would be able to offer help to people who need it so much easier. Like right now, it just feels like we're like handcuffed and not able to reach the people we need to reach because of the rules and regulations of our professions. It's really a challenge. Yeah, I um, personally think that we we need a different field because the using the theory diverges so much from what we have it's difficult to be able to work in this way and then have constraints because that sort of goes against the whole idea of you know inner inner autonomy and multi-levelness once you start to put those constraints in you're just sort of putting the field into level one if, if that makes sense And so I've been thinking about this a lot about the idea of having like lived experience experts or coaches or like it pretty much is guides. But if you say guide, people think that you're, you know, off in the forest like a shaman, which is not a bad idea. But anyway, to Everest. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I, I am actually doing training in psychedelic assisted therapy in the middle of the year. So it's not so disconnected. Um, anyhow, I, I, I do think that we need to, we need to revolutionize the mental health system. Like I think we're on the same page with that. And people are, it's not just a fun thing like, Oh, this would be cool. You know, it's actually like people are suffering. Like they are not getting the help they need because they're going through these things. They go and try to seek help and they get kind of re-traumatized because they are told that there is something wrong with them for having these experiences. They might be institutional. Like, I I mean, I don't want to go on too much about this. The only reason I've avoided this is because I have the privilege to have the knowledge to know what's going on. I am actually quite worried about a lot of people who would they are too terrified to even speak to anyone who's a mental health professional because of what could happen. Um, to them and yeah academically interesting in terms of the actual health implications of not using tpd that seems like a dire need in my opinion you're not the only one with that opinion Mm. like we've like chris and i have talked a lot about like how do we obviously this gets discussed a lot in 
gifted education spaces and there's a Dabrowski community, I guess. It's like, how do we get this out to mental health? And I've been crapping on about this for a while is like that's really where we need visibility because people like me who were going through a dark night of the soul, they're not on the internet Googling Dabrowski or positive disintegration or overexcitabilities or even giftedness and certainly not gifted education. If they're adults, they're probably out there going mental health. Um, But yet if you go to places like, and Joey, this probably makes more sense to you because these are your Australian sites. But if you go to places like Beyond Blue or Black Dog Institute or Headspace or any of those services that are dealing with people who might be going through those dynamisms, they might be getting that anxiety or that depression or, you know, having those experiences, you don't see anything at all. You don't see anything about neurodivergence or giftedness, and you certainly don't see positive disintegration. And that is a worry because, like, I know I've been through that place where I was out there struggling and looking for answers, and it took me until my mid-40s to find those answers. But the problem is there's a few times in my life that happened before that that I nearly didn't make it through to get to my 40s in the first place. So the struggle is real, And the danger is real. And it's like, I I completely agree. How do we get that message into that space so it can be seen by the people that need it? Yeah, um, I I empathise a lot with what you're you're saying. And I don't know if I would still be here if it wasn't for my psychology degree and my intense interest in this stuff, honestly. I mean, I have been thinking about this stuff a lot. And I, I think one of the issues is the theory is... I think what Debraska was doing is he was actually doing a, a system dynamics theory of psychology before there was any system dynamics. And and by that, I mean, if you look at the theory, every sort of level, like the overexcitabilities change depending on the level. And that immediately calls into question, like whether this is a reductionistic model or a dynamical model. And the dynamical model is more true to, living systems like living biological systems we are humans in a society it's a complex dynamical model we are not computers and and that is the huge issue with psychology is cognitivism we split up box 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 and i mean this has implications for all of science actually because we don't think in system dynamics and we don't do it because we couldn't do it until recently and now we can model chaos we can model emergence we can model self-generation the models are there but psychology as a field is deeply rooted in these structures of thought and society like here i go off again it's difficult for a society to shift we need to go through a positive disintegration on the societal level And that is neurodiversity. That is the neurodiversity movement. So right now we have a lot of violent opposition to neurodiversity, which is good. We are starting to shift our way of viewing human difference from boxes to complex interactions, uh, social ecology, uh, the, the fact that it's not just in our brains, our brains are in the environment and there is no split between that. We have uh, what uh, the the field is, um, enacted neuroscience. Um, so that's where we need to go. And until we do that, Dabrowski won't fit because it's that. 
model. That's what I'm kind of trying to do, but not burn out. <laughs> so I don't know if I'll be able to do it if people keep freaking out whenever I say anything. That's my dilemma. <laughs> I know. Well, it's really hard that we have to deal with people who don't necessarily see where we're coming from. Mm. They don't get it. But I agree with you completely that he was seeing things from such a like a visionary perspective compared to anybody in his time. And that's why we're still talking about the theory. It's so complex. It has implications way beyond the individual level, you know, to the societal level, disciplines, you know, different fields. And I hope that we can revolutionize mental health. And I hope that we can get more people on board with the theory. And this kind of ties into the last thing that I wanted to ask you about today, which is, can you say something about how we can use this theory and our understanding of neurodivergence to better support the people that we work with. And, you know, however that looks, whatever their flavors of neurodivergence are, you know, what advice do you have for other people who are doing this work? The biggest takeaway from the theory for me is that it is not always helpful. In fact, it could be harmful at times to view distressing human experiences as pathology. Once that that idea is appreciated, I think that we'll see development in our field. And and, and people can, I, I guess, practically, you know, when, when someone is in front of you and they are distressed, could this be a sign of growth for them? That's a huge lens change. You know, I mean, when you're being trained to be a clinician, you take classes on the DSM or learning how to diagnose. And then, you know, maybe in your internship or practicum, you work with somebody who doesn't just pathologize and diagnose and who is able to see things from, you know, other perspectives. But it's not easy to reach clinicians and help them understand this theory because even though it makes sense to us when we're talking about this, those of us who know it and get it, it really does go against the basic just way that counseling, social work, psychology are done in practice, which is unfortunately not always looking to see if somebody's going through growth. And I, I mean, I guess it depends too by field, you know, um, each of these fields that we're talking about has different best practices and, you know, different lenses. But I can say that, in my lived experience of having many dozens of clinicians, only a few of them didn't pathologize me. Um, you know, I mean, I remember like one man that I saw when I was like 22, like he was one of the few people who was like, oh, what you're describing is an incredible imagination and creativity, you know? <laughs> but unfortunately, I had so much internalized ableism at that time that I was like, I just disregarded what he said and was like, well, I need to find a clinician who is going to pathologize me. Like that can't be right. That this is just creativity. Like this is something that's wrong with me. It's, it's so hard to battle like that kind of feeling of, you know, internalized ableism too, because that's just how it's just too easy to fall into it. It must be something wrong with me. Yes. There are people out there that won't pathologize. Um, and there's becoming more, more of them. So I have hope. I have hope too. And it's true that the pushback against the neurodiversity movement 
to some degree is baffling to me because it seems so self-evident and obvious that this is something we should embrace and work with and be happy about. But change is hard. You know, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around this idea that we can even celebrate being autistic or ADHD or whatever. All of these things, like what benefit is there in seeing that like, what benefit is there for my kid and being like, well, there's something wrong with you. You're, you know, you have dyslexia. It's such a lens shift to be like, I am dyslexic. And it means that I have an experience of, you know, understanding visual spatial stuff, like so beyond you. And that's what I see in him. And it's like, it just seems like such a no brainer to me that this is something to celebrate. And yet we have opponents Yep, that, that's how disintegration works, I guess. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, I, and who knows, like, it's so funny, too, that, like, in my mind, I want this to be a fast disintegration <laughs> where we, like, get through it, and yeah. it's not, like, super messy, and it's like I've forgotten how disintegration works. <laughs> that sometimes it's slow and brutal. Mm. And not all of us will be able to, like, I, I sort of feel as if, um, we're all doing it together and some of us will be able to go, okay, now I need to go to the beach for three months because I can't anymore. And then we might come back. But to, I think together we will all kind of process together. But, yeah, because it is such a group thing, it's going to affect everyone in different ways. That's okay. I want to offer my uneducation opinion on this because I think, some of this is from, you know, public perception. I'm the least closest to the, the, the <laughs> Good, subject matter. Um, if you look at particularly the history of, you know, ADHD and there's this common perception of, oh, your kid gets a diagnosis and they get shoved on medication and that's what that's all about. And then we're over in a corner talking about neurodiversity and the things that get mentioned are things like ADHD. There's not a clear message they just go, oh, this is on the same subject. So, you know, it's it falls in that same pathologizing bucket. Like they don't understand that neurodiversity is actually the opposite of that and a different way to view things. And again, this comes back to translating what the message is. In in all things that we've talked about, we've talked about translating for your partner and translating the theory so it can be understood and translating the theory into clinical work. It's also about taking that message of here's what we mean when we talk about neurodiversity and here's what we mean when we talk about giftedness and making it as simple and bite-sized and crystal clear so there's no room for misinterpretation as humanly possible. So rather than having a rapid conversation over here about neurodivergence and people get every, you know, tenth word that falls out and put it together to make their own conclusion, we need to be like super articulate and concise about what it is that we want people to take away as the key message here. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, it, it does. I agree with you. And I sort of, I think that we need to, it, it's kind of like a process that goes back and forth with kind of trying to understand what it is that's what that's going on in the, in the complex way and then feeding that to the, the translation knowing that in translation we are always boxing and we're using the language of the old model. So there has to be a transition phase to when we can think in system dynamics, which is possible, 
but we have to shift our way of thinking, not just what we're thinking. And in order to shift our way of thinking, people need to know what that way is. (laughs) And I've lost the ability to translate, (laughs) clearly. But um, I think that's what we need to translate. We need a shift in thinking. That's hard. It is hard, but it's true that we do need to think about this stuff differently than we have. Yeah, I mean, I have hope that it's possible, but it's going to come from a grassroots movement of researchers, clinicians, um, and people with lived experience who come together to say, this is what we're talking about. This is what this is like. This is what works, rather than what we've had historically, which is the lens of pathology being you know, put on people, researchers who aren't autistic, doing research about autism and trying to figure out what it is by what it looks like. All of this is problematic. And so we kind of need to burn down the current state of affairs and and research in a lot of these areas and just start fresh. And I know that we, I, I would like to link in the show notes to the group that we're both in that's called like autistic researchers researching autism, because I think that that is such a great group and such an interesting mix of people. And like, I'm in it, even though I am not sure if I'm autistic, like maybe I am, I don't know, but I'm for sure neurodivergent. And so I said that when I joined. (laughs) So, um, but this is the kind of thing we need is to have communities and spaces where people who get it are having a say in research and practice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like this has been a great episode, even though I am like super tired today and was very concerned that (laughs) I was just going to pass out like while we were in the middle (laughs) of this. So I'm glad that that didn't happen. Well, so wonderful to speak about uh, my passions and I hope that this, this is helpful or inspiring to to your listeners. I'm sure it will be inspiring. Um, And so thank you, Joey. And thank you, Chris, as well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. It is always a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you coming along for the ride with us as well. This podcast is brought to you by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider leaving a donation through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, consider leaving us a review or a rating. You can get in contact with us at positivedisintegration.pod@gmail.com. at gmail.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook.